Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Well, we've already said it once, but um, goes without saying, happy Mother's Day to the moms and my mom and my wife, too, here today. Um, we're so grateful to be able to spend this morning with you. And like uh, Brenda mentioned, um, today at any point, um, even during the message or after, if you uh, would like to bring an offering to God, you're more than welcome to do that. You can do it as you leave today. But we just really, God is challenging so much of what we do and how we do it. I don't know if you're like me, but when you get into routine and rhythm in life, uh, after a certain point of time, it just becomes automatic. We don't even think about it. And God has been so deeply challenging us with this idea of, of bringing an offering and what we do with that. We actually believe very um, strongly that God has called us to steward what we have on earth. And we're going to find out today why. And the reason that God has called us to steward what we have well on earth is because there's a continuity between your life today and what's to come. There's a direct continuity. When we die on this earth or when Jesus comes again, you don't die and become somebody different. You don't die and the slate is not erased. You don't become some, maybe you want a different name. Maybe he'll give you a different name if you're not happy with your name. But we don't die and become somebody different. He's actually entrusted us with things today to steward. And we want to give you the chance every weekend when you come to actually bring an offering to God. We bring an offering in our worship. We bring an offering when we apply our mind to Scripture, and we bring an offering when we bring our resources into his kingdom. He's invited us to partner with him and what he's doing. And so that's why we've been changing things, and we're not afraid to just try new things and to actually let go of some things that we're doing that um, we don't even understand why we do them anymore. And so... If you're wondering, that's a little bit about that. I am, this subject matter for me um, is one of the most exciting to talk about. And it wasn't always that way. The idea of heaven for me, maybe it's like this for you, was very nebulous for most of my life. Then um, in one particular season of my life, I, I had been exposed to, to death and um, to premature death uh, in our family, uh, really as far back as I can remember. It was normal thing for us to walk through grieving and loss and to experience death. Some people don't experience it a lot when they're younger and it takes till they're older, but for me and for our family, it was pretty normal. Um, but there was one particular season in the life of our family that just uh, completely rocked us. And there were several significant, tragic deaths all in a row one spring in 2011. And faced with the overwhelming 
magnitude of what was happening. I didn't know what to do or what to think. I had all of the same superficial Christian cliche terms that everybody else did. Well, God is in control and all of these things. And we don't even know what we're saying when we say them. And then in this springtime period, I started to study about heaven. And I started to dig into what the Bible actually says about heaven. And probably like most of you, for most of my life, I, I remember hearing this verse that everyone quoted. Well, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart could fully know what God has prepared for those who love him. And I quoted that all the time. I knew that. And so I assumed, because I had heard that from somebody somewhere, I assumed that the Bible didn't really have anything to say about heaven or the afterlife. But that's only the first half of the verse. It actually goes on to say, but God has revealed it to those through the Holy Spirit that are in relationship with him. He actually has a lot to say. And it's by no means exhaustive. There's more questions than there are answers. But I firmly believe in that season of my life, it became an anchor of hope. And not just of random hope, but it actually became a driving force that gave me vision and purpose and hope to walk through a season of life in our family that that was crushing. And maybe you've experienced that before with the loss of a loved one or a child or a brother or sister or a spouse. These moments in our life can be crushing, but we have an anchor for our soul if we'll just look and find it. And that's what heaven became to me. It became a destination. It became a shoreline that I could see where there was more clarity, it became something for me that I could look to, to give me strength for the future, to give me hope for the day. And the more I began to study and the more I began to to investigate, the more hope and joy I had. What was once foggy and nebulous and undefinable gained clarity and insight. And within me, this this new vision and this new purpose and this new sense of direction began to take shape. And I believe that one of the reasons we're in such a crisis today of hope and a crisis of vision and purpose is because we've lost our ability to understand what's coming next. So if we're foggy about the future, How in the world do we have clarity about today? Just think of it in terms of your work life or your family life. If you don't know tomorrow morning when you get up what you need to do, we know that we have to get up and after our quiet time with God, it's we make lunches for the kids and we have this routine because we know what's on the horizon. We know what's just ahead. But if you wake up and you have no idea what's going on in your life. You just wake up aimless and void of direction. And so often when we think of heaven, we have no 
picture or idea of what things are really like. And so we just kind of wander on this earth. We struggle to find purpose and we struggle to find meaning and we struggle for vision and, and we have no hope when things are, are crushing in on us. And, and I believe that God wants to restore your vision of what's to come so that you have purpose and strength for the day. Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews said, most people believe it's Paul, he said it was because of the joy set before Jesus that he was able to endure the cross. And so a couple of weeks ago, we, we took uh, you know, our first stab at some of the beginning understandings of, of heaven, and you can refer to that um, message on our website. I'm not going to go into that, but I, I just want to do a review of one key word that we talked about. And this time we have the definition. It wasn't that guy's fault last time. It wasn't Robert's fault. Remember, I was standing up here waiting for it, and I was all flustered and everything. It wasn't his fault. I actually didn't put it in there, but it's in there today, I'm pretty sure. So it'll be egg on my face if it's not. But we investigated this word new. When Jesus said at the renewal of all things to his disciples in the book of Revelation, it says that God is going to make all things new. That Greek word for new means to restore. It, it means to refresh or to spring to life again. It's actually not a word that, that, that actually means to, to completely uh, wipe out and it doesn't mean that it's something totally different. It's actually renewing and refreshing something that already was. And so when the Bible talks about heaven, when the Bible talks about what is to come, it's not talking about the annihilation of every life on earth. And it's not talking about the annihilation of the cosmos and the earth and the heavens. It's talking about the renewal of something that God has already made good something that he made good and perfect and was tainted through sin. A curse was put on it through sin. And so God's heart, when he says that he wants to make all things new and that there will be a renewal of all things, it's not a newness that's different. It's a, it's a revitalization and a restoration. For some of you car lovers, it's like taking a classic that's been rusting out in the barn for 60 years and restoring it meticulously to its original purpose and design. So the first thing we need to understand is that word new doesn't mean different. It means restored. That can give us such great hope because what lies ahead for us is not something we can't imagine. The whole point of it is that we can imagine it because we've seen it. We've seen glimpses of it. You see glimpses of it when you travel through the Rocky Mountains and you see glimpses of it when you walk by the falls. We see these partial glimpses of what God made good and perfect. And he says, one day I'm going to renew it. And with your eyes, you're going to see it in all its majesty and glory. And it's going to shout of my name. It's going to raise its voice in victory and in glory once it's released from the curse that it's under. And so the hope we have is not that we are stepping into something different that's unknowable, that's frightening because we can't understand it. 
The hope that we have is God is going to renew what we already know and it will be perfected. Who gets excited about something they have no idea about? Like nobody does. You don't get excited when you have no concept of what it is you're talking about. But if you've seen it, if you've gotten a little glimpse and picture, you get so excited. I remember um, from our, when I was graduated grade eight, um, for those few years, we lived in Ottawa. And I had just started skiing when we lived in Ottawa. And so we skied across in the Gatineaus. And uh, I just, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then my dad gave us the horrific news that we were moving to Saskatchewan. And in my mind, my little 13, 14-year-old mind, it was a death sentence. If there was a purgatory, I was going to it, right? And I couldn't, like, I couldn't fathom. I had just gotten so passionate about, I was so passionate about skiing. I was borrowing, do you remember this? Our friends from church, they lent me their old skis, but they were literally snapped and broken on the back. So they would just flap like this as I was skiing. But I didn't even care because I loved it so much. And then we're moving to Saskatchewan and I felt like my life was over. We crossed the border of North Dakota. I don't know if you remember this. And I literally had a temper tantrum for like four hours as I looked at the landscape around me and saw no elevation changes, nothing. I lost my mind. I couldn't believe what was going on. And then, then I started buying these ski magazines, and I would meticulously take an exacto and I'd cut each page perfectly. And I would make a, I made, literally I did this, I made a grid on my wall, perfectly symmetrical grid, and I put all of these pictures up from Powder Ski Magazine and all these magazines that had these incredible pictures of skiers in the mountains and in Alaska and in Europe and all over the place. And I would stare at them in my room in the flat, expanse of Saskatoon, just resenting where I lived. That first winter we lived there, I heard that our youth group was going on a ski trip to Fernie, British Columbia. And something just sparked in me. I'd never been to the mountains before. I'd never been further west than Saskatchewan at the time. And, um, and so, of course, um, I had to go. I signed up. I bought all, well, they bought, my parents bought new equipment for me. And I remember as we were going, sitting on the bus, they had rented this big, you know, Greyhound bus that we were all on. There was like a hundred of us that were there going to BC. And I remember everybody was talking and goofing around and watching movies and all of this stuff. But I, I, I was fixed my face was pressed up against the window as we crossed into Alberta, as we crossed further into Western Alberta and got close to the foothills. You couldn't have pulled my face off of that window if you tried with 10 men. I was so, so anticipating seeing the mountains for the first time. And as they came up over the horizon, that front range of the Rockies, that range is called the Lizard Range. And as they came up, I just, I was in awe of their size and their grandeur 
and the beauty of these white-capped snow peaks. I just had never seen anything like it. I'd been staring at these pictures in my room for months and months and months, and now, with my own eyes, I got to see it. That's what I believe Jesus wants to show us as we investigate heaven in his word. He wants to give you a picture of something so incredible that no one can pull your face off the glass as you stare into the future, as you stare into what's to come. It will give you vision and strength and hope. There was nothing that anyone could have told me in that moment that would have decreased the hope that I had and the joy that I was experiencing. And in that same way, he wants to give you a vision for what's to come because he knows how desperately you need hope. He knows how desperately we need strength and life. That's what he wants to do. And so we investigated last week this word new, and it's not something different. It's actually something we can picture and imagine. I just want to quickly touch on this because it's important. When we read the Bible, there's six different literary styles found in the Bible. I don't know if you know this, and I don't want to geek out on this too much, but it's important to understand when we're reading through the Bible, there's different writing styles that we'll read through. And these different writing styles express concepts and express principles in different ways. And I just want to show them to you uh, this morning, just so that you have an idea of them. They're historical writing. People depicting actual events that happen, narrative writing, that's what the Gospels are, wisdom and poetry and prophetic and instructive writing. There's all these different writing styles found, and what's so amazing is that each one of them expresses the kingdom of heaven in a slightly different way, but they all work in congruency together. So we're going to investigate a couple of things this morning, and today we're specifically talking about the present heaven. I feel like we're going to clear up a few things this morning as it relates to what happens when you die or when your loved ones die, if they know Jesus or if they don't know Jesus. What happens right now? And I want to just clarify something right at the outset. When people talk and when we talk about living for eternity with God, that is not in the present heaven that is existing right now. The place that people go when they die right now is not the heaven of eternity. The Bible is so clear, so, so, so clear that actually heaven is coming to earth, that Jesus is coming here, that he is meeting us here and forever, for eternity, we will live on this earth with him. So when we talk about eternity, it actually isn't what is being experienced in the present the Bible says that God is going to remake the heavens and the earth. What is happening in that zone right now, whatever it is, we know a little bit of it, but whatever it is, is not eternal. Only God is eternal. It's so important for us to understand and wrap our minds around that what happens when you die right now is you don't go to the place where you will be for eternity you go to this place that scholars call the intermediate or the present heaven. And we're going to look at a few scriptures that talk about that. 
in different literary styles. Luke 16 in the New Testament, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're gonna actually just read a couple scriptures and then I'm gonna make a few observations about them. So those um, notepads that were on your chairs, yes, you can doodle on them, but I think that you might wanna grab a pen and start taking notes because there's gonna be a lot uh, to cover as we work through uh, this stuff this morning. So Luke chapter 16. All right, this is a parable that Jesus is telling. One of the key things for us in understanding these different literary styles is there's a great deal of overlap between them. So the gospels are narrative. They describe what happened on the earth. They describe what happened with Jesus and his disciples. But in the middle of that narrative concept, we have things like poetry and prophetic, and we have these, um, these parables that express principles about God and about his kingdom in different ways. And so we're stepping into this, this zone here where Jesus is using an illustration to give us an idea of what is about to happen. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Let's start here. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father, Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one from there can come here. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers and I want to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Turn back a few pages to the book, or in the book of Luke to chapter nine, Luke 9, 28 to 36. Okay, so that was a parable that we were reading. Now this steps into the narrative literary style right here. This is a recollection of actual events that happened. Luke 9, 28 to 36. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see and they were speaking about his exodus from the world which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. 
Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Skip forward to the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. We're gonna just focus in on chapter six here, verse nine to 11. You can, I'll give you a second to find that. Revelation six, nine to 11 says this, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, that's Jesus, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. All right, I just want to make a couple um, brief observations about these texts. So we have three different writing styles we're, we're reading here. We have narrative, we have prophetic. That's the whole book of Revelation is largely a prophetic book. This is a vision that John is getting directly uh, from God. And then we have this parable that Jesus told. And all three of them give us some clues of course, we don't know everything about what happens after you die, but they give us some clues about what we might be able to expect. And so I just want to roll through these. You can get a pen out and you can write some of these down. Number one, first clue is that there's continuity between this life and the next. Lazarus is the same man before he died as he was after. The rich man is the same one before he died as after. On the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus is the same, Moses is the same, and Elijah is the same. In the book of Revelation, when these martyrs who are under the throne, when they cry out to Jesus, they're crying out on behalf of what happened to them, themselves. So it's not that they change into somebody else and they don't know who they are and what they're doing and where they are and who these other people are. There's a direct continuity between this life and the next life. Jesus made you the way you are and who you are. He wired you the way you are for a reason. It's not a mistake or an accident. It's not something that he wants to wipe the slate clean and say, oh, I kind of messed up with that one. No, he actually created you the way you are for a reason. And there's continuity between this life and the next one. Number two, our life here now impacts our future. The decisions that you and I make today have a direct and correlated impact on our future. There's continuity and what we do today matters. The life that Moses and Elijah led mattered. The life that the rich man and Lazarus led mattered. There's a direct correlation between what you do with your life today and what's to come. Number three, 
we go immediately to either heaven or hell. That seems like it's a bad word, and in some contexts, hell is a bad word. We don't say it at home in a bad way. But I, it's so clear from Scripture that, number one, our souls don't go to sleep. We don't become unconsciousness. We don't die and become a vapor or a spirit that floats aimlessly through the cosmos. We don't go to sleep. When we die, we go to an immediate eternity with Jesus in his presence or away from him. The, also the idea, maybe you grew up with it, of purgatory, that we need time to work out our sins and that we need time to atone for things is not consistent with the Bible. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks, but there are two essential judgments that all of us will experience, a judgment of faith and a judgment of works. A judgment of faith is simply based on our relationship with Jesus. Have you decided to make Jesus Lord of your life, to allow him to lead your life? Have you accepted through faith what he did on the cross for you? If you did, you will go immediately into the presence of Jesus. There's no time to figure things out on the back end. There's no time to atone for and make up for the lack of decision you made here on earth. What happens, happens immediately. Number four, through scripture, heaven, okay, we're talking specifically about the present heaven. The present heaven, God uses physical language to describe it. So what I want to bring to your attention or just make as an observation, although we don't know all of the details of what that means, why would God describe something with physical characteristics and physical nature if it inherently wasn't physical? If what we go to when we die is just a cloud in the sky and there's nothingness, it's a void of everything, why would God use physical characteristics and attributes to describe it? More importantly... How would Jesus be physical because he rose from the dead physically? He's physically in heaven. So we know, at least in part, that some people right now are physical beings in heaven, in the present heaven. So are they physical beings that just kind of float around for hundreds or thousands of years? No, every time the Bible describes the present heaven or the future heaven, it uses language that has a physical description. We are so influenced, so influenced uh, by Plato's theories. And his theory, Plato was uh, the most influential thinker of his day, and it's even uh, carried through thousands of years. Plato believed that everything physical was... Um, ungodly, that everything physical deserved to end, to die, to be no more, and that the ultimate state of man was to be spiritual. And so we in our churches have adopted this thinking. We've kind of fused Plato's idea with the Bible that things on the earth and fleshly things are bad and spiritual things are good. And so therefore, God wants to get rid of the bad and just leave himself with the good. But we forget that God created a good and perfect earth and put a good and perfect man and woman on that earth to steward it and to partner with him. God has no intention 
of going back on his original plan and design. He has no intention to strip you of your body. You were made for a physical body, and our physical bodies were made for a physical reality around us. He's got no desire to strip you of everything that defines you and have you float aimlessly like Casper the ghost through space for eternity. That's not his plan or his desire. That's why he uses physical descriptions of even the present heaven and certainly of the future heaven that we're going to talk about. Number five, in all of these circumstances, the subjects in question are aware of time. So we have this other idea, oh, that once we die and go to eternity, there's going to be no time. Where did we come up with that? Where did we come up with that idea? Don't you think it's interesting to note that both Lazarus and the rich man were aware of time. They used time as a reference point for their lives. It's interesting to note in the Old Testament, when King Saul went to the medium in Endor and called up the spirit of Samuel the prophet, which by the way is witchcraft and God expressly forbids talking with the spirits of the dead. When he called him up and Samuel actually showed up it terrified everybody because they didn't think that that was going to happen. But Samuel recalled what had happened on the earth while he was alive, and he knew what had happened since he'd been gone. Isn't it interesting that Moses and Elijah, as they're talking with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, they're making reference to specific moments in time that were to come. So there's not this total whitewashing of this idea of time. The martyrs that are under the throne in heaven right now are aware of time because they're saying, Lord, when are you going to avenge what happened to us? And God says, I will, but not yet. So there's not, we don't go into this kind of weird vortex of like where time is non-existent and doesn't work. Again, our bodies, this universe, this earth is, is formed with this foundational principle of time and seasons. And God is not going to just wipe that out. Number six. Sixth observation. God cares about what happens to you and me on this earth. Some people believe because they've heard and, and misquoted this verse that in heaven there'll be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more crying. We're going to talk about that later. But they assume that because... There's no more sorrow that somehow, A, God can't know what's happening on earth, or B, that he's oblivious and doesn't care about it. And so we have grown up with this idea that God is distant and unloving and uncaring, that he is this mechanical force that has set things into motion that have destructive and painful outcomes, but that he doesn't ultimately care. But actually we see through scripture after scripture that he cares deeply, he cares deeply about what happened to those martyrs under his throne. He cares so deeply that he says, you trust me with this. I am going to make every wrong right. He cares about what happens to us in our life. Number seven, there's an awareness of the events that have taken place on earth. In some way or in some fashion, obviously we can't answer this fully, but in some way or in some fashion, 
At least we know from Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and these martyrs under the, under the throne that they're aware of what's taking place on earth. But yet we've grown up again with this assumption that there is a, a complete disconnect between heaven and earth right now. But they're aware of the events taking place. We're going to read about this because it's really powerful. But there's a conscious intellectual awareness. So we see that heaven is described with physical properties, that people use their volition, their will. There's emotion in heaven. There's intellect and decision-making in heaven. They're using their full capacity, the same full capacity that we have here on earth is existing in heaven. Are you with me? <laughs> I feel like I'm going 100 miles an hour. I sort of am. But I want to just, uh, I want to land here, and I'm going to invite Brandon to come up. In Revelation 13, verse 6, it says that the beast, and the beast is basically a euphemism for the devil, that the beast, his objective is to slander God, to slander God's people, and to slander God's place, to heaven. And I believe that the devil has a very specific and clear objective in discrediting heaven God and ourselves, our own identity. And I want to just expose a few things. What we've learned today, a few of the things that are exposed that contradict the lies that the enemy wants to speak over your life and over my life. And you can jot these down because these are things that come up literally like every day for me. We're confronted with this mistruth and mischaracterization of who God is of who we are and the place that he is preparing and that is waiting for us. Number one, lie about God that these truths, these observations confront is the lie about God's holiness and the consequence of our actions and sin. We have this soft pitch cell gospel, this half gospel that we've bought into that just focuses on the grace of God. Like, Jesus, we just want your love and your grace. And yes, we do. And yes, we need it. We're, we're lost without it. But God is holy and righteous. The Bible says that we will give an account for literally every word that comes from our mouth. And the devil wants to trick us into believing that what we do doesn't matter. That we, we can just skate on God's goodness and his grace and his forgiveness. That we can just coast on that that our life doesn't really, really matter, that God couldn't, he couldn't send people to hell. That is based on a lie of the enemy and our completely inferior thinking and understanding of the character and nature of God. God's holiness demands righteousness and we only experience righteousness by accepting Jesus Christ as our savior. His righteousness in place of ours. That's it. But the enemy wants to trick you into believing that God couldn't do that. That God couldn't bear seeing people suffering. But the Bible is clear. God said that he loved you so much. He loved me so much that he gave us a free will to choose him or not. It's not really love if you force somebody to do it, right? If we force somebody to marry us, 
or we force somebody to do something, it's not love. We're compelling them to it. True love gives the choice to decide. And God has given you and I a choice to follow him and trust him, place our lives in his hand or reject him. And he's holy and righteous and fully just, and he will honor the choice you make. Don't believe this lie that he won't because he will honor the choice that every man and woman who's ever walked this earth will make. We see from this story and these stories, the rich man and Lazarus, that he honors the choice that we make. Number two, the second lie is we believe a lie about God's justice. That somehow God is ignoring the pain and the carnage and the suffering on the earth. And that somehow it's our duty and our responsibility to take matters into our own hands. And so we stand up and we fight and we push back. We scrap for every square inch that we can get. And God says, I am just. I know you've been hurt. I know you've been wronged. I know things that are unthinkable have happened to you, but I will make them right. But the devil comes in with his lies and he says, no, it's on you. You make it right. You seek your own justice. You vindicate yourself. You make things right for yourself. And God says, no, trust me. I've seen every moment, I've seen every tear, I've heard every cry for help that you've ever made. And one day when I renew everything, I will unwind and undo all of the destructive force of sin and the curse that's been on your life and on this earth. But you have to trust me. I'm just and I'm good and I'm kind and I'm faithful. But we spend so much of our life just trying to, to claw, to claw for our own justice. We want to vindicate ourselves. We want to be the ones who stand up and say, I'm not the one who's wrong. In this marriage, I'm not the one who's wrong. I'm the one who's been hurt. I'm the one who's been abused. I'm the one that fill in the blank over and over and over. And God says, I know you are. We don't have to pretend that we're not but we can trust him with it. We can trust him with it because there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everything that's been wrong and caused hurt and pain will be restored because he loves you and I. There's a few lies that we believe about ourselves. So those are a few things from these texts that we believe about God, but there's a few things we believe about ourselves. He lies to us that our choices don't matter. We've talked about that a little bit. He lies to us about our value and our identity, about our purpose, that we've actually been made for a reason. Don't you find it amazing that Moses and Elijah, these powerful men, of God in antiquity and history. They come in their fullness of who they are, standing beside Jesus, bringing him counsel, talking to him about the events that will take place. God has wired you and I uniquely for a reason. There's not a person here who is a mistake. 
You haven't missed the mark. God didn't kind of sleep through the day that he made you. He made you for a reason. And the reason he made you will only ever partially be fulfilled on this earth. The reason that he made you will be expressed through eternity on this earth with him as we walk with Jesus, as he entrusts us to live out our calling in the fullness of how he's made us and created us. You're unique for a reason. God has a purpose and a plan for you. And if we understand the way God has made us here on this earth, we can begin to walk with decisive vision and direction. Saying, God, I don't want to waste another day of my life. I don't want to waste a moment doing things that will actually detract from the way you've made me and created me. The last one I want to land with. See, lies, the devil lies about us being alone. Maybe some of you have struggled with this. You've heard this whisper into your ear that no one cares, no one's around, that you're a nameless, faceless moment in time in history. But God actually says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And even more than that, this is the amazing thing about it. Because of what we've learned today, we realize that even apart from Jesus, there is, as Hebrews calls it, a great cloud of witnesses. These men and women who have gone before us, our brothers and sisters, some of our family members, who are actually cheering us on. They're saying, keep going. Don't get stuck right now. Don't get stuck looking back. Keep going. Don't you realize what you've been made for? Don't you realize what is lying ahead of you? It's the very thing the rich man was begging Abraham to do is tell my family because if they only could see what I see now. And Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let's strip off every weight that slows down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. There's a verse in Luke 15, 10 that so often gets misquoted. And it says that when one person and for every person that comes to faith in Christ, there's rejoicing. But a lot of us misquote it and say, by the angels in heaven. It doesn't say that. It says, in the presence of God's angels in heaven, there's rejoicing. Who's doing the rejoicing then? It's not angels who are just cheering us on. It's this great cloud of witnesses, these people who are spurring us on and saying, you can do it. You've been made for this. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You can do it. You're not alone. We see you. I just sent a text to my mother-in-law yesterday. Mother's Day weekend for her is horrific because her son, my brother-in-law, her only son, was killed in a car accident. He was one of the ones that died in the spring of 2011 in our family. And I sent her a message yesterday 
And I said, I know you're already thinking about tomorrow and you're already grieving and you're already going through loss and you're already struggling and suffering and you're so alone sometimes and you feel like you're reeling from the pain that you've experienced. But I want you to know, I want to remind both of us that I believe based on scripture, because my brother-in-law knew Jesus and had a relationship with him, that he's actually cheering us on. He's saying, Mom, stop looking in the past. Stop dwelling on the past. But I'm, I'm challenging and encouraging you. I'm spurring you on to the future. And God says, like, uh, like a stadium filled with people. We're on this track, this race called life. And they're cheering us on to finish well. We're not alone. We're not alone. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to end with this. Ephesians 2, verse 10. Some of you might know this off by heart. Ephesians 2, 10. It says this. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Before you breathed your first breath on this earth, God had a plan and a purpose for your life. And it wasn't just for what you do now, but it's actually linked to how he's designed you to contribute and partner with him for eternity. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.